Hi, I'm Lordy. Hi, I'm Sim. And I'm Tammy. And together we're Our New Normal. The Our New Normal podcast explores how to change our environment for the better as we journey into the new normal. Join us for conversations among friends and experts in the fields of environmental toxins, psychology, health and spiritual health. As building biologists and low-tox coaches, we are seeking to empower others to find clarity amongst the confusion. Today, we chat with environmental toxins expert, educator and holistic health coach, Lara Adler. Lara's resume is extensive. She has featured on dozens of summits and podcasts. She appeared in the nine-part documentary film series, The Human Longevity Project, alongside other renowned health experts such as Dr. Stephanie Seneff, Dr. Mark Hyman and Kelly Brogan. She is also a member of the Naturopathic Association of Environmental Medicine and the American Holistic Health Association. Lara is dedicated to continued education to stay abreast of the environmental issues impacting human health. She is also dedicated to educating practitioners and allied health professionals about exposures to environmental toxins and the links between daily chemical exposures and a range of chronic health conditions such as thyroid disease, infertility and even behavioural problems in children so that they are better able to serve their clients. We identify with Lara's mission to encourage and empower individuals in making a change in their own lives and thereby demanding and creating change from industry. The conversation today delves into some of the issues we face in uncovering the science and delivers the positive take-home message that all major change comes from grassroots movements and there are positive changes you can do to influence a healthier lifestyle today. We hope you enjoy this episode of Our New Normal as much as we did with the passionate Lara Adler. Lara, thank you for joining us this morning or this afternoon as in your time out in Portland. We're really grateful to have you with us and we'd like you to start by sharing a little bit about yourself and your journey and what made you want to start educating people about environmental toxins. Yeah, sure. So my name is Laura Adler. I'm in Portland, Oregon, as you said. I'm an environmental toxins expert and educator, and I work specifically with health professionals really across all modalities um, to help them better understand the links between chronic low-level environmental chemical exposures and the chronic health issues that, you know, people around the world are dealing with. Um, And I I really like working specifically with that health professional audience because they're already working with people who are motivated to start making changes and, you know, be it around their lifestyle or diet or fitness. And this conversation really dovetails into that. And, you know, I kind of stumbled into this space on accident. A lot of people in the health space, you know, kind of get into their career because they had their own health issue that they had to overcome and, they fixed it and then they were like, well, I want to help other people. That didn't happen to me at all. It's not my story. I didn't have any toxic exposure um, that you know changed my life. Uh, instead, I kind of came about it in a more sort of circuitous manner. I had a whole other career out of college for seven to eight years, another industry, very boring. But I was always interested in nutrition and health. And so eventually I kind of found my way to this this thing called health coaching, which I was like, oh, well, here's maybe this way that I can 
kind of flex this nerdy muscle that I have around health and nutrition and, and do some work in the world that I felt was valuable and that mattered. Um, and so I started doing that work. I went to school. I started working as a health coach part-time. And it was really in the process of seeing clients, um, mostly around weight loss, that I kind of stumbled into this whole arena of chemicals and how chemicals can impact our health. And, you know, at that time, I was looking at it through the lens of, you know, weight issues. But my sister-in-law was also pregnant with my niece. She's now 11. So that's my yardstick for how, like, how long have I been in this little bubble? And I was researching, you know, what are the products that they should be buying or what should they be mindful of as they have a new baby coming into the house. And it just totally blew my mind as I was doing this research. It was, I was horrified. And I was horrified. Yes, okay, sure. I was horrified that these, you know, thousands of chemicals are being used in consumer products and they're linked to health issues. But also like, kind of horrified that I'd spent so much of my life at that point immersing myself in the health space. And this was kind of the first time I was hearing about it. So I, I really felt that the education at that point in the health coaching space and then come to find out in all the other spaces was really lacking. And I think it's something that, you know, is definitely getting a lot more attention these days, which I'm grateful for. Um, but yeah, that's, that is, that's how I ended up here. That's an interesting journey. And I think the girls and I were all nodding at you and smiling because we've all, uh, and they're both laughing, we've all had a journey, as you described, um, that led us out of uh, accounting and teaching careers into this space. And uh, we all met studying building biology and we're at varying degrees. Tammy's qualified and Sim and I are on our way. And um, the environmental toxins piece is one that, is particularly dear to all our hearts because we've had issues and like you researching for your sister-in-law, this is how we actually yeah. fell into all of this. So, and, um, and once you fall into it, like you can't, you're in it. You can't, you can't unlearn no. this stuff. You can't <laughs> yeah. sweep it under the rug. Like you're in it. And I Absolutely. think that, that is, um, it's definitely like a Venus flytrap. Once you're in, you're in. Yeah, no, we totally agree with you. And interestingly, while studying building biology, we've worked out that while we do touch on environmental toxins, it's a very brief touch. We're looking more at a macro aspect yeah. of your home and your indoor air quality and things that you would also look into in your courses. And I know that because when I first found you, I studied or I did your water course, which I found yeah. to be absolutely amazing, so comprehensive. And, you know, looking at all of your other things and I'm doing talking toxins at the moment, yeah. which is brilliant. So Thank that you. ties in for the girls and I, all of the little things within a home. So yes. it marries beautifully with our building biology training. So uh, your water course was huge and we know that uh, we have environmental issues here, but I think the US has far bigger pollution problems. Would you like to address a little bit about water and I mean, it's vital to life for all of us and yeah. um, how that I mean, plays I, in. I, I would definitely, like my assumption is that people have water issues everywhere. Like we have it bad, but we also have to put all of that, you know, quote bad into perspective. So, you know, as a, as a developed nation, we have quote better wa water quality than a 
developing nation that doesn't have, you know, the maybe doesn't have the government regulations about pollution and, and they may not have um, the same types of sanitation that we have here. So it's, I would say that the water quality, unfortunately, everywhere is bad. It's just different types of bad. So in developing countries, we often have um, issues with communicable diseases being spread in water, typhoid, dysentery, um, and, and things like that, cholera, which, you know, those, to me, those sound like, you know, 1800s diseases, but like, they're still present in the world. People still get cholera and dysentery um, and typhoid from contaminated water. When we move into the developed world where, or countries where we have really modern water filtration systems, we don't have those problems anymore, but we have a different set of problems. And, you know, some of those problems are directly related to the chemicals that are used to make sure that we don't have cholera and dysentery and typhoid. So these products that are chemicals that are used to disinfect the water, like chlorine and chloramine. So like those are great. It serves a really important purpose. And there's also a downside. So I'm a big fan of the yes and instead of but, because it's a yes and. Like there is benefit and there's a detriment as well. Um, and so, yes, we have um, chemicals like chlorine and chloramine residues that are in the drinking water that can have um, an effect on humans. That's just a tiny tip of the iceberg. We have disinfection byproducts. So those chemicals um, like chlorine will react to naturally occurring compounds in the water and create these secondary byproducts called trihalomethanes. And trihalomethanes are carcinogens. So if here in the United States, we have a federal requirement that our water municipalities like produce this report every year that's like, here's what's in your water, here's what we test for, here are the levels. And, you know, that report is, one, it's just a snapshot in time, so it's not always super accurate. It's the best that we have access to for free. Um, but that is also only reporting on chemicals that are regulated so in the United States, we only regulate about 91 chemicals in our drinking water. So many other chemicals are present in the water, but they're not regulated. It's really hard to get any kind of regulation passed in this country. And our current administration certainly is not making that any easier, um, as we were talking about just before we started recording. Um, the Environmental Protection Agency just declined to regulate a chemical called perchlorate, which is a component of jet fuel, um, which is a thyroid hormone disrupting chemical, so it directly affects the thyroid. And they uh, decided that they don't want to regulate this chemical in drinking water, even though the, the federal government's own studies have shown that it causes a risk to children, specifically because of its uh, toxicity. And that's just, you know, we have lead, we have pesticides, we have pharmaceuticals, we have narcotics, antidepressants, all of these compounds in our water that are not being regulated. And unfortunately, the system is so broken that if a consumer, if an individual wants clean water, they have to spend money to go find the right water filter, assuming they can afford one. Right. Look, this is where we step into the conversation again that we mentioned before we started recording is, you know, where we have these racial, economic, social disparities between exposures. So a good example of that is Flint, Michigan, 
which put the topic, this is a, you know, international headlines that put the topic of um, lead contaminated drinking water on the map. And that, you know, Flint is a, you know, majority black city. I think 40% of the population of Flint, Michigan is under the poverty line. And that years later, we're going on, you know, three, four years later, people in Flint are still don't have access to clean drinking water. And so the fact that this has been this really slow, tedious process where in the meantime, children are drinking contaminated drinking water that can cause serious uh, learning disabilities, neurological problems, uh, loss in IQ points can lead to aggression and violent behavior later. So it's this big cluster <laughs> of problems and it's unfortunately complicated and it's unfortunately can be intimidating for people because they feel like they need a degree to figure out what's in my water and how do I fix it. Yeah, and I think Lara just even touching on that, when you talk about, you know, we're talking about the chemicals in the water and then we know that that applies across every aspect of everyday life and thousands of chemicals that are in existence. What is it then that, you know, you've touched on the EPA not wanting now to... um, regulate certain things and then the you know the current administration undoing a lot of the work that's been done in the past why like from your perspective why why is it so difficult to have these known unsafe chemicals banned when we know what they're doing to health yeah so um i unfortunately um there's layers to why that is i think the first and most obvious answer is that the American Chemistry Council and the chemistry industry as a whole is one of the largest lobby groups in the world. So they spend billions of dollars lining the pockets of politicians to get them to pass industry-friendly policy that allows them to continue the status quo and you know allows them more leeway in terms of polluting. Um, and so it is very much um, finance, short-term financial greed. There is no long-term thinking. I think what happens in these um, big industries is they think, how much money can I make in the short term for me right now? And like, you know, future generations, like whatever, they'll figure it out. Uh, You know, they're just passing this buck. And um, I think so, so on the one hand, we have this really corrupt nature of our political system that's being bought and sold by industry. So I think that is number one. I think number two, and this is still part of number one, the little subcategory is, um, you know, and then in the United States, we don't have any kind of national health care. We don't have any national health care. And so what that means is that the individual person has to bear the burden, the financial burden of the cost of disease. We have to foot the bill, right? We don't have subsidized um, health care from our government. In other places, like in the European Union, I don't know what you guys have in Australia, but in the European Union, most of the EU countries have some kind of national health care system. And what that means is that the government foots the bill for chronic disease. When they're the one that's paying the tab, they are far more motivated to regulate and legislate uh, differently than we do here. So until we have some kind of national health care system in this country, that shoulders the cost onto the government, they're not going to um, 
they're not going to stand up against the lobby groups and the chemical industry. They're just going to say, well, it's not my problem. It's, it's all of the citizens of the United States' problem. You deal with your own healthcare costs. And I think that's a really interesting observation and, well, and reflection that you make about the fact that your healthcare system, in a way, by design, allows this to occur. I mean, we're fortunate in Australia. We have a very good healthcare model. You know, obviously there's negatives in, in every yes. system. Um, but what we've noticed in Australia recently is our chemical regulator, NICNAS, I think has been renamed to the Australian Industrial Chemical Introduction Scheme, um, has just withdrawn some of the regulation around um, what they deem low-risk chemicals and put it back onto industry to self-regulate. And obviously that Which is. historically they do a terrible job, right? Like uh -huh. this is the fox guarding the hen house. It's that type of analogy. Um, you know, an article that was just um, reprinted in a U.S. paper that was originally published in Le Monde, which is a French paper, talking about the regulation of endocrine disrupting chemicals in the European Union, like this whole class of chemicals, thousands of chemicals that interfere with our hormones and that do so at extraordinarily low levels. And that they found that there were these quote unquote scientists and, and self-proclaimed experts that were writing papers to journals that they own, like they own the journal and then they're writing a paper and then they're citing their own work, which is not how science, like that's not how that works. You can't cite your own work in a research document, like in a letter to the editor of a publication. And these are people that have not spent any par large portion of their career studying endocrine disrupting chemicals, but their voices are so strong and they beat the drum so loudly that they're actually interfering with the way that these chemicals are being regulated. And the experts who have been in this space, who have spent decades studying these chemicals and who recognize as a fact that low levels of chemicals cause harm are like, what is going on? How is anybody believing these people? They're outrageous. And so we have this, um, they're, and they're not disclosing their ties to the pesticide industry and the chemical industry that they absolutely have in almost all cases. And so this is where you have this really subversive um, behavior that's happening behind the scenes. And unfortunately, the people that are victims of that unknowingly is the entire population. And that's, you know, I think that's, it's just such a huge problem. I think another reason I'll sort of add this to the list, at least here in the United States is, you know, we have um, what's called tort law, which is where, you know, you can sue a company for a wrong, a civil wrong, something that they've done. Uh, a product has harmed you in some way. And, you know, Americans are known around the world as being like, sue happy, like we just sue everybody, right? Um, and industry actually relies on tort law as a, um, almost like a shield. So they say, look, if you think it's so bad, sue us. That's what tort law is for. But the problem with these chemicals that are used so ubiquitously in commerce is there's not one company to sue. Who are you going to sue for exposure to an endocrine disrupting chemical? Everyone. You can't sue everyone. And the tort law requires that you, you know, prove without a sh beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's this product in particular that caused harm. It's re the, the, the burden of proof is nearly impossible to meet. And so industry just says, look, 
If you think it's that bad, sue us and we'll see what happens in court. But these industry lawyers, they have endlessly deep pockets, right? So they will just draw litigation out for years and just bankrupt families of people who've been harmed. And I think here in the States, we see these cases and they make such a big splash with Monsanto, um, you know, losing this lawsuit um, to J Dwayne Johnson, who was the landscaper who mm. was spraying glyphosate um, uh, Roundup on the schoolyard or whatever and developed lymphoma. lymphoma. Um, and then more recently, um, we have, I guess they were happening around the same times, are the lawsuits um, that women who were um, had developed ovarian cancer were suing Johnson & Johnson because of the talcum powder. Now, those cases are unique in that Monsanto is the only company that produces glyphosate. So if you say who you're going to sue, you're going to sue the one company who makes it. Johnson & Johnson is the primary distributor, seller of talcum powder. And so who are you going to sue? You're going to sue the one company that is responsible for the vast majority of talcum powder on the market. So those cases are unique because there's someone to sue. Hmm. So I just think it's a complicated mess. And until we fix that, it's just up to the individual to kind of take care of it on their own, which is, you know, it's not fair, but it's what we have to do. Yeah, I think I'm so surprised just given that whole Monsanto you know, there's been several cases now, haven't there? I think a couple oh, there's are aboard a building. thousands more in yeah. the in the dock. Yeah, you know, I can go to my local supermarket and it's still, still there. on the shelf. Yeah. Um, I just think, why aren't the regulators there, you know, pulling it off? Yeah. Because people are getting paid and, uh, you know, it's it's horrifying. It really is like it's infuriating you know like people ask me like oh how did you get into this work and i'm like outrage rage just like that's that's not okay <laughs> yeah i feel exactly the same and, and you just think i need my voice to be louder um yeah because they have the money they they've got you know the means like you say to get the wrong message out yeah and once we know this you can't unknow it well Certainly. And I think the good thing is that, you know, in terms of like making your voice louder and kind of spreading the message out there, I think we have to remember that when we're like all major change comes from grassroots movement. It just does. It, it does. It always has. And so, you know, and this is why, at least here in the United States, you know, we have BPA, this bisphenol A, this plasticizer that, that's used in hard plastics um, that's banned from use in babies' bottles. That happened because moms found out and were like, oh, hell no. And they took their, there was this whole stroller brigade that like strolled their little babies up in their strollers up onto the lawns of Congress and, and the state houses. And what politician is going to turn their nose at a bunch of moms and babies? Not any smart ones. And so they were responsible for the regulation that, ultimately removed BPA from baby bottles. It wasn't because the companies were like, oh, we found out this horrible thing and we're gonna do the right thing. It was regulated because people stood up and demanded it. You know, and certainly, I don't wanna call that like a screaming success because a lot of companies just took out BPA and they put in BPS and BPF in its place. So, but it's an example of, you know, this is, this is how these changes happen. It's really interesting because, as you say, it really needs to come 
from the grassroots because when we start making noise, people go, hang on a second, these are my constituents, they are the people who are voting. Yes. Maybe we need to do something or be perceived to do something. <laughs> and it's interesting because David Michaels came out with an earlier book uh, this year in February and, and he was an official at the CDC and he, in his book called The... The Triumph of Doubt, um, if I remember mm. correctly, and it details the corruption of the science behind the public policy. Um, but as you touched on earlier also, is that Paraclesis was famously quoted as saying, the dose makes the poison. Yes. And did you want to explain that for people? Because it is paramount because yes, it's, it's key to everything because anything could potentially yeah. be a poison, couldn't it? Yes. Um, and, and so, yeah, so Paracelsus is known as the, you know, sort of the godfather of toxicology. Um, this is, you know, 1600s figuring out, ah, okay, everything is a poison. It just depends on how much. And this is what was, he didn't actually say, what he actually said was something very different, but it's paraphrased into the dose makes the poison. And the idea is that, Everything can be toxic. It's just a matter of how much. And so large amounts of something are obviously being air quotes here, a little sarcasm, obviously going to be more toxic than something that's really small because small things don't hurt us because we can handle it. And that has developed into this sort of foundation of toxicology that they believe that to be absolutely true across the board, that all things follow this model of the dose makes the poison. And it is a true statement, but it is not an absolutely true statement. And this is where the world of endocrine disruption and endocrine disrupting chemicals kind of throws that whole concept on its head and turns it inside out. And what's fascinating to me is that, you know, toxicology, the field of science of toxicology is very, it's kind of like one of those old boys clubs. They're like, don't tell us how to, we know what we're doing, right? And so they're very resistant to any idea that butts up against what has become dogma for them. It's everything is the dose makes the poison. We see this reflected in people's reactions when they learn about chemicals. Oh, but the amount is so small, they couldn't possibly hurt us. Well, even water can harm you if you have too much of it. You know, salt is good at a low level, but can kill you. Um, radiation will kill you at a high level, but you know, normal amounts of everyday radiation is not harmful. So I'll say that most things do follow the dose makes the poison um, model where a larger exposure to something is gonna be more dangerous and more damaging from a health perspective. When we're talking about hormones, things are different because our hormones are naturally, so our hormones are communication mess messengers, they're molecules. They just are passing signals and they circulate through our body, our estrogen and testosterone and our leptin and ghrelin and cortisol and all of these other hormones that we have. It's not just our sex hormones. They are produced by our bodies in like these unbelievably small levels. So we're talking parts per trillion levels, really tiny. And we certainly know after going through puberty and watching people go through menopause that like those small fluctuations can be really dramatic, right? Hormonal changes in our bodies can be really dramatic, but the fluctuation of chemicals, is, of natural chemicals, of hormones is so tiny. And that's because our body was designed to respond to these really tiny 
levels of hormones. Like I said, hormones are communication messengers. I like to say that they communicate in whispers, right? Like just these tiny amounts and lots of big things happen because of that. And so when we have these endocrine disrupting chemicals, these are chemicals that block or they mimic our natural hormones. Our bodies can't tell the difference. And we're getting exposed to these chemicals at similarly low levels, parts per trillion, parts per million, it makes sense it logically, intuitively, that those low levels of hormonally active compounds can cause an effect in the body. And what's fascinating to me is that the field of pharmacology and the field of endocrinology know that this is just fact. This forms the basis of how pharmacology works. This is, forms the basis of how endocrinology works. And so you talk to an endocrinologist or a pharmacologist and they're like, yeah, for certain chemicals, compounds like low doses are absolutely a fact of life and then you have toxicology over here that's like no that's not real that's not possible well, the problem is all of our regulatory decisions are based on toxicology research and so we what, what that means is that you know as humans are we're all being exposed to these chemicals every day so we have chemicals like phthalates which are found in soft plastics they're found in fragrances um, here in the united states they're found in like 98 percent of people tested 98% of the population. Bisphenols found in 93% of the population. Um, I think perchlorate was found in 97% of the population. Like, these chemicals are ubiquitous. They're all inside of us. Um, and, uh, you know, that matters because these chemicals have the ability to cause these really subtle changes in our physiology, in um, tipping the scales towards disease, and changing our, our expression of our hormones, changing the expression of our genes. And I think the problem is, you know, in the field of toxicology, we're often thinking of like, you know, acute exposures. They're looking, when, when toxicology research is testing chemicals and they're saying, okay, what, let's figure out what is, what is some, what is quote toxic? Is this toxic or not? They're looking at really severe endpoints in their research studies. Does the organ weight change? Does the animal develop cancer? Does the animal die? So that's their benchmark. Right, death, organ weight, organ failure. Mm. They don't look at things like slight fluctuations in your thyroid hormone or a longer time to pregnancy or loss of IQ. They're not looking at these subtle changes. Oh, that's going to change their insulin resistance, which can lead to diabetes, obesity, heart disease later on. They don't look at those endpoints, they don't consider them. And so we have a very flawed approach to determining what is something that's actually safe. And here's another piece, and I have not done any significant deep dive into this. I've really only just scratched the surface, but I find it really interesting that there's new discussion of the rodents that are used in animal studies. They're, you know, they're most of the ones here in the United States anyway are all bred in the same lab. There's just one company that kind of cranks out all these mice and, and rats for research studies. Well, those rats, because they're all sort of genetically similar, there's problems with that stock that's not necessarily representative of humans. And we know that, okay, the mouse model isn't a perfect model for humans, but it's what we have, because guess what? We can't test chemicals on humans. That's not ethical. So we, we combine this research where we're testing animals and we say, okay, we can test animals. Here's what we see. And then we're going to go look at epidemiology research and say, do we see the same thing? And can we make inferences? That's how science works. But if we're dealing with a 
uh, rodent population that has you know, different reactions because of the way that they've been bred. They've got different genetics um, because that's what happens when you have a sing single line of breed stock. Um, anyway, I'm just, I'm interested, I'm kind of interested in going down that rabbit hole and learning more about that, but then I'm just going to, I don't know how productive that will be. Our industry of work definitely leads us down many rabbit holes. We, the three of us oh, have found. So many. Rabbit holes. <laughs> so many. Yeah, absolutely. It's what keeps us driving forward to it. As you said, exposures to low doses of some chemicals on a daily basis is far more harmful than exposures to high doses on a short-term basis. How do you think we can help people to understand the magnitude of the body burden that this places and then initiate change? Education is the only way. And unfortunately, you know, terms like body burden are not terms that like everybody knows what that means. And so there's this, there's hurdles that we have to get over before we can really connect with people to make changes. What I find really helpful, rather than just saying, look, chemicals are bad, chemicals are in us, we have to do something, you know, that feels very abstract and sort of nebulous, ethereal, like, okay, cool, there's chemicals, what does it have to do with me, is the, is the thought process. And so my thought process is then, okay, let's find out what does this have to do with you? What health issues do you have that you don't realize may have some connection to these environmental exposures that you're going, that's not a big deal. If we can personalize that, if we can say, well, you know what, that, that autoimmune disease that you have, um, there's actually a really strong correlation or connection between these environmental toxin exposures and this disease that you have, uh, that diabetes that you have, right? That's the type three diabetes is, is like the new Alzheimer's, right? There's strong, strong connection there. And so if we can make these connections, the weight that somebody wants to lose, the skin issues that they have, the digestive, the reality is environmental chemical exposures are linked to pretty much every chronic health issue that people have. It doesn't mean that any individual person's health issue is caused by toxins, but it certainly is not helping the situation. Um, and so someone's cancer, like you can't talk to people who have you can't ignore the, the contribution that environmental chemicals, including these endocrine disrupting chemicals, play in things like breast cancer, right? Uh, prostate cancer, testicular cancer, uterine cancer, ovarian cancer, um, uh, lymph lymphomas, childhood leukemias. And so if we can personalize, like I don't know anybody, myself included, that doesn't have some kind of health issue. Like we're all at this place where like we're all dealing with something and it's not normal. It's common, but it is not normal. And I think that is a big mistake that people make in their sort of thought processes and thinking of, oh, well, everybody has something. So, well, but everybody shouldn't have something. Just because everybody does doesn't make it okay. And so I think the best way to really start getting people to understand that this is something that we have to do, pay attention to and do something about in our lives to the degree that we can. And that degree is going to be different for everybody based on, you know, resources primarily is that we have to connect it to something that they're dealing with fertility issues, autism, digestive issues, skin issues, acne, stress, insomnia. Like it does, there's always a component and it, it you know, I'll, I'll share an example of something that um, somebody had written to me as an example of, how people often miss toxins. They don't consider toxins. So I got an email from a woman who is a health practitioner. She's a certified nutritionist, I think, 
um, that I think that was her license, and she's you know done all of these different trainings in the functional integrative health space, um, and she was like, you know, I'm not telling you this to toot my own horn. I'm just telling you it because it's relevant because I, I'm, I get it. I understand how these things all work, but I was experiencing hair loss and it was just getting worse and worse and worse. And I didn't, my hair was cutting shorter and shorter and I was crying myself to sleep and it would just go down the drain. It was devastating. She's like, I did all the hair mineral analysis. I did, you know, the testing, the herbs, the acupuncture, I did everything and nothing, nothing. It was just getting worse. And then she says, I heard you on a podcast talking about water. And this light bulb went off and she said, oh my God, my water system broke three months before the hair loss started. And so she's like, I got it replaced. I fixed it. And like within a couple of weeks, the hair loss started to stop or started to slow. And then it stopped. And now she has new hair growth. And she was like, I, I just, and I have no idea what was in her water. But the point was like she had seen so many different practitioners. She had turned over every stone except for this, like, let me look at what I'm, what's happening to me in terms of what I'm being exposed to. And for her, it was the water. And not everybody's going to have experiences that are like that black and white, but certainly there are a lot of instances where people are, you know, struggling with fertility, for example, and then, you know, they work with their doctor who hopefully would be fluent in these issues, most of them are not, to start systematically reducing their toxic load, getting the bisphenols out, getting the phthalates out, getting all of those thyroid suppressing chemicals out, and then their fertility improves and they can conceive. Now, it's certainly not the case for everybody, but if, again, I'm just going to keep beating this drum, if we personalize it, then we get people's attention. Otherwise, I think what happens is it falls into the bucket of like recycling. Like it's good for the earth. Toxins are bad for air pollution. Like it, it, it's, it's externalized. And so if we can internalize it for people, um, especially if they have children and say, look, these, you know, a lot of these chemicals are linked to neurodevelopmental issues, to IQ issues, to behavior issues, fertility in adulthood like we if you want to have grandkids like this is important stuff yeah so that's that's how i think we have to get people on board which is again why i work with health practitioners because they're already working with people who have been taking steps to say i have this problem that i want to solve and then it opens the door for the practitioner to say great one of the ways i'm going to help you solve it or address it is by doing this thing over here, toxins and stress and sleep and nutrition and all the other lifestyle stuff. Lara, that's brilliant. Thank you so much for giving that example. I think a lot of people are going to have a lot of aha moments through what you've told us to date. And we were going to chat to you about some of the symptoms that people um, that may indicate a toxic overload in their bodies. And is there anything that you see or that you know that your clients are seeing regularly that, great indicators of that. Yeah, that's actually really hard because they're often, you know, things like brain fog and fatigue certainly top the list, but those can also be something else. And so that's what's challenging here. This is very much an invisible threat because we don't have, when we're looking at chronic exposures, meaning a little bit every day, we're not having like these big reactions that are like, oh, I have to call the poison control or go to the emergency room, right? Like that's typically what people think of when they think of something being toxic. They think of it being acutely toxic. And so when we're looking at chronic toxicity, um, the symptoms can be so varied. 
from person to person that it can be hard to figure it out. It might be insomnia for one person. It might just be this slow creep of weight. It might be fertility issues. Like there's not a, a specific set of symptoms that says, aha. And then we also have to consider that certain chemicals will affect us in different ways. So if we're looking at things like heavy metals and mercury that are very acutely neurotoxic, that's where we have things like fatigue and brain fog um, and tingling in the extremities. Like that's going to be more of a sign of an acute toxicity. But I don't know anybody that doesn't have some degree of brain fog, right? So like this is the issue is they get kind of masked in all of these other symptoms. But that said, you know, I think that even though we can't find sort of universal symptoms, I think there's universal actions that we can take. And I think that's the thing that like, regardless of whether or not you feel like I have a serious chronic illness, and most people don't, they're walking around and they don't know that they have, you know, leaky gut or gut inflammation or those migraines that they've been getting all those years or food sensitivities, like they don't know, right? They're just like, I get migraines. Um, is that if we can focus on, on the action steps, right? Like minimizing exposure is number one. That's the means that we shop differently and we choose products that aren't made with synthetic fragrances. We're not buying scented candles. We're not buying air fresheners or Febreze fabric sprays. Like we're not bringing those things into our home. They pollute our indoor air. We breathe them every day. We're eating organic food as much as we can afford. We prioritize that. If we can filter our water, we prioritize that. And then we, you know, we're making sure that we're eating really nutrient dense food because that food is not just about like, oh, it's low in calories and it's got like vitamins and minerals. Like yes to that, but also it has compounds that our liver, our body fundamentally needs in order to function and do its job. And our liver is the organ that is responsible for breaking down so many of these toxins. And so we need to give it the fuel that it needs to do that job. And that fuel comes in the form of like, eat your broccoli, eat your cabbage, eat your cauliflower, like eat your kale, eat your garlic, eat leeks, eat onions. Like those compounds are so um, valuable for us in terms of detoxing. The other thing that those vegetables do is they provide bulk and fiber to our diet, which helps us poop because poop is the number one way we get toxins out of the body and waste out of the body. So like if people, I mean, look, even if people didn't focus on avoidance, if they just focused on like trying, aiming for like one to two poops a day. And I say that and some people are like, what? I only poop once every three days. And I'm like, how are you alive? I don't understand that. I'm sure all of us, like we, I'm sure poop talk is normal. Everyone I know, poop talk is normal. Um, but, you know, again, it's a situation where like it's, it's common, it's not normal for people to, to not poop regularly. And like, if we're not pooping regularly, then that fecal matter that's bound up in our colon, it, our body's just reabsorbing those toxins because it's going, you know, I, I better do something with that. Um, and so we want to get that out. So that fiber that we eat to help our liver also helps us get toxins out. We want to make sure that we're drinking water because our kidneys flush out water-soluble toxins. Got to drink our water. Like these are basic fundamental. Like eat your vegetables, pee and poop, get some good sleep. If you have a sauna or access to a sauna, go sweat. Sweating is so good for releasing especially fat-soluble toxins, um, including things like heavy metals. 
is so good. Um, so sweating regularly is like a free activity. That sauna is relaxing, it's enjoyable, and it's so beneficial for your health. So I really believe that if we focus on avoidance, which means minimizing as much exposures as we can, while at the same time maximizing our body's capacity to, to deal with this burden, um, people are going to start getting healthier really fast when they couple those two things together. And I like that, that you've made it. People could have that element, I think, of control. Like, yeah, we don't have to feel, oh, my goodness, it, it, you know, it's all over. What, what, it's nothing. Small steps. You just touched on it a little bit earlier about working with um, practitioners. Yes. To get this message out. What do you feel has really caused the standard medical model to overlook environmental toxins? I mean, I know that there's, you know, a multitude of factors, but what's the essence to you that perhaps why just in the simplified, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's a good question. Um, I don't know if I know the answer. I can guess at some answers. You know, one, I think that, um, it, you know, it's pretty well established that um, it first it takes about 15 to 20 years before research makes it into clinical practice. So doctors, unless they're spending a lot of their time staying current with the research, which we're going back to the insurance model, because of the insurance model, they have to see hundreds of patients a week. They don't have the time to spend diving into the literature. So what that means is that, you know, the average sort of allopathic conventional doctor is 15 to 20 years behind the science. And I don't want to say that and be like, oh, doctors suck. We need doctors. They're amazing. They're doing the best that they can, but they're doing the best that they can within a broken system that doesn't allow for them to actually have, you know, a smaller patient load or they're making more money off of individual patients. You know, people always assume doctors make a lot of money. I have plenty of friends who are doctors and they're like, yeah, no, that's not how that works. So one, I think there's that, there's that gap in, um, you know, the 15 to 20 year gap between science and clinical practice. I think also that we have curriculums in medical schools that are very slow to adapt. So I think that's even slower. I mean, curriculum is hard to put together. I get it because as somebody, and I'm not talking medical school level here, but as somebody who does course creation, like content and education is hard. And when you're in something like medical school, you know, it does certainly requires like consensus opinion. Yes, this is how you treat heart disease. Yes, this is how you do this. So I think there's that aspect where, you know, that medical school curriculum is really slow to evolve. I think we also have to recognize that I've had a number of doctors tell me that they were told everything that you learn will be outdated by the time you graduate. So like, good luck, guys. <laughs> and so the real learning of medicine is why they call it practice happens when you're actually out there doing the work. And so there's no way because of the model and the slow evolution of that curriculum that they're ever going to be like fully up to date, right? And I know everything I need to know as soon as they graduate. There's only so much time. And so the learning happens after the fact. Um, so there's that. 
There's also the layer of we have a lot of industry influence, even in school curriculum. We know this in the nutrition space. A lot of the nutrition um, curriculum is, you know, it's all sponsored by Coca-Cola and ConAgra. And, you know, like they, that's who backs these big nutrition programs. So that happens also in the medical space as well. And then, you know, like, again, there's only so many topics that someone can cover. You know, would I like to see this change? Absolutely. Because... You know, right now in the average medical school curriculum offers only like 19 to 21 hours of nutrition training. Like that's insane. When it comes to environmental health, first of all, not all programs have education on environmental health and ones that do the average number of hours is only seven. And even then that training is not in this chronic low dose exposures that we're talking about. They're talking about occupational exposures, drug use, cigarette smoking, that kind of environmental health conversation. So they don't, they miss the boat on what's actually happening. So I just think those are the obstacles um, that we're facing. And I think lastly, because again, there's always layers to this, is that the conventional medical model is really looking at diagnosing and treating disease. Right? They're not looking at preventative medicine. They're not looking at lifestyle factors. And like, that's not to say that it's a bad thing because we need diagnostics and we need disease and surgeries and disease prevention and, and drugs and surgeries when they're necessary. I don't mean it to sound uh, in any way negative, but it's like a one-trick pony. Like, okay, you can do drugs and you can cut it out or you can kill it with drugs or chemo or something like that. But like, they don't have training in all of those other lifestyle things. And because of that, I think there's a, they poo-poo it, right? They're like, well, that's, I didn't learn about it. So it's not, doesn't have any merit. And I think that that whole paradigm needs to change. Yeah. There's many challenges that we face in getting the messages out there. How do you think we might raise awareness though to help initiate change in the way people think? Do you think it's down the avenue of, of what wellness looks like and looking at health? What do you think? we? Um, I don't, that's a good question. I don't know. I think it just, I think, you know, it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier is that I think that we have to internalize this conversation. So I'll give you an opposite example. So like the environmental movement as a whole around the world has failed. Like it's this save the whales, save the monkeys, save the whatever, save the koalas, uh, save the, well, quals really legitimately need help, but after that terrible fire, but, you know, save the pandas. It's this cute, I'm going to save an animal. I'm going to recycle. That's how we think about environmental health. And the reason why that has failed is because it's externalized. It doesn't feel like I'm doing anything as an individual. And it doesn't feel like I have any control over what happens in the Australian bush with a giant fire. I don't have any control about oil spills that are happening in the middle of the ocean. I don't have control over that. And because we don't have control, we feel like, well, I got other problems in my own life. Like, it's just not my problem. But it is our problem. Like, it's all our problems. And so I think that, again, it's that failure of externalizing the problem. We have to internalize it and say, how does this affect me? How will this affect me? You know, our recycling rates here in the United States are like abysmal. They're terrible. We just don't recycle. 
Um, and I think that's going to be starting to bite us in the ass because like all these, you know, countries, China and, and, and all these other um, Southeast Asian countries were like, hey, we don't want your garbage plastic anymore. So now we're like, oh, we have plastic coming out our ears. And it's a problem, right? And so, yeah, I mean, to, to get back to your question, Tammy, I think it's, it is about internalizing it. Let's making sure that we're connecting it to us as individuals because it, it does light a fire under us to, to do better. I think it's a little bit of both of internalizing it and then contextualizing this on a broader scale. So um, I'll give you a broader scale contextualized example. I'll give you two. The first is like lead exposure and IQ points, right? So lead exposure in childhood might lead to a slight decrease in IQ points. One or two IQ points drop and an individual child, not that big of a deal. Like they'll still be, you know, go to college, get a job, not a big deal. When we look at that population wide, that's massive. It shifts the whole bell curve of IQ points. It also shifts the whole bell curve of economic earning capacity. Lifetime earning capacity drops as your IQ drops. And so there is the immediate and then there's the bigger picture. There's the zoom in and then there's the zoom out. Here's another example of, and this goes back to like the healthcare um, conversation. Um, there was a paper in 2017, I think, that looked at 5%, really tiny number of the endocrine disrupting chemicals that have the most robust data. So like the phthalates and the BPAs, ton of data on that. And they looked at the contribution that those chemicals play in some of the most chronic health issues. So heart disease, diabetes, cancer, loss of IQ points um, was in that list, small section of chronic disease. And they said, what is the cost? What's the economic cost? What's the burden, the actual dollar amount of the burden of cost? And what they found was that here in the United States, 5%, tiny number of these endocrine disrupting chemicals with only a small handful of chronic disease costs the United States $341 billion annually in healthcare costs and lost wages that we pay as individuals right? The government doesn't pay. They reproduced that same or similar um, research in the European Union, and it was about two-thirds less of a financial burden. Why? Because they regulate chemicals generally, not, not exclusively, but they regulate them more strictly than they do here. So it's this idea of like, you know, I guess it's... Some people... If they're dealing with a health crisis, they're focused inward. This is my problem. How do I fix it? We have to learn to speak the language of the person that we're talking to. So if you're talking to a finance person, talk to them about numbers. Talk to them about 2% of our gross domestic product goes to paying healthcare costs associated with a tiny fraction of chemicals that are not regulated properly in this country. And then they're going to go, huh, okay. Right? So we have, to, we have to learn to be flexible and dynamic in this conversation. If somebody's dealing with a child that has learning or developmental disabilities, they're struggling, they have autism or ADHD, then let's talk about the chemicals that are linked to those types of health issues and say, look, you know, if you have a child with sensory issues, right, which a lot of autistic children have sensory issues, let's get all those synthetic fragrances out of the house, the laundry detergent. You may not think about these things, but for a sensory sensitive child, the smells that they're constantly being bombarded with can easily be a trigger for them. So like we have to speak the language 
of what is the problem that somebody has. And this is actually what I work with my students on in the, my practitioner students. The first questions I ask them is like, what is the problem that you solve and for whom? Because if you don't know that, you can't communicate properly about toxins or nutrition or fitness or anything else. You have to push it through the lens of what is the problem that somebody is experiencing because then we listen. I love that. Thank you. Yes. That's absolutely brilliant. I think you've given our community and our listeners a heap of things to think about. Lara, give us a, a, a bit of hope. You work with practitioners yes. and practitioner students. And like you said, we really need it to come, the change to come through there because they're the people who are already working with people. So please give us some hope and tell us that you're working with some amazing students and you're changing and you're opening yes. up their world. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, look, I'm, not, I'm certainly not the only one that's having this conversation. There are plenty of other people that are really mobilizing around this topic that are working with individuals, that are working with people that have fertility issues, whether they're practitioners or not. There's people in the, like, uh, zero waste community. There's people in the environmental community. They're all having this conversation. I think that there's lots of good news. Like I'm, I'm always looking for the silver lining because this is a heavy topic, right? It can be he hella depressing. I'm like the person, as I like to say, I can make anything that you do, I can ruin anything that you're doing. Like, oh, did you know that that has some chemical? Like I'm clear a party pretty quick. I don't, but I can if I want to. It's like a secret weapon I can wield. Anyway, it, you know, it's this idea of, you know, we're trying to inspire people to make change um, in their own lives. And when we do that, there is definitely a ripple effect. And what we see in the marketplace is there are now hundreds and hundreds of companies that are producing products in direct response to this awareness about chemicals where they don't, their skincare products and personal care products, household products that don't have these chemicals, so consumers do actually have more of a choice. 10 years ago when I started doing this, I couldn't find, like, it was a battle to find a couple of products and they usually didn't work very well, right? And so now there's so many products and that means that the landscape is changing it's so dramatically. Organic food is like the fastest growing sector of the food industry because people are demanding it. So that's an improvement. The natural and organic skincare sector is the largest and fastest growing sector of the beauty industry because people are demanding it. And what's really inspiring to me is that it's like millennials. It's like this younger generation of people that are like, you have, you, meaning all of you adults have been like, polluting our planet and we're the ones that are going to have to deal with it. Uh-uh. So like I have a lot of hope in this younger generation because we, they grew up in the age of transparency where everything is on the internet. And so you can't hide your dirty deeds can't hide. And we didn't grow up in that. I didn't grow up in that generation at all. And so we're used to that. Like obfuscate. I can't say that word. I'm tongue tied. You know what I'm trying to say? <laughs> Absolutely. That word. Um, we're used to, you know, having to kind of dig and take it at things at face value and like, trust us, it's safe. Okay. Younger generations are like, nah, uh-uh. And I think that's where the hope is. Like, I get really excited when I talk to people that are like in their 20s and 30s even, and they're just learning about this and they're super motivated to spread the word. So there is hope. And, you know, just the changing marketplace is a really good example of that. Thank you. Is there anything you would like to leave our community with before we um, let you go? Yes. Yeah, I'll say, you know, if you're feeling motivated to start making changes, just pick one thing. 
Um, you don't have to change these things all at the same time. It doesn't have to happen overnight. If it takes you five years or 10 years, it's a journey. It's, in a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And, you know, don't feel like you have to throw all your products out. You can use what you have. And when it's empty and you need to replace it, replace it with something better and safer. So, you know, don't beat yourself up about what you didn't know before and just kind of move forward and say, how can I do better? Wonderful message. Thank you so very much for sharing your time and your knowledge with us. And we hope to chat to you in the future. Thanks, Lara. Yes, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us. You've been listening to Our New Normal. We are pleased you have taken time out of your day to tune in today. As always, if you like this episode, or any of our other episodes, subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen or download our podcasts. If you would like to follow or connect with us anywhere else, we are active on Instagram, Facebook or our website. The links are in the show notes. Unfortunately, liking or following someone on Facebook or Instagram doesn't necessarily bring up their content on our social media feed anymore. So the best way to keep in touch is to subscribe to our emails, which you will find on our website. Also, if you could give back to us by giving us a five-star review, especially on Apple iTunes, we would really appreciate it. It doesn't take more than two minutes. So as you head out today, remember, our new normal is a positive thing. It's an age where we are informed, empowered and in charge of our own health.